and intellectual property. Hello and welcome to this 39 Essex Chambers AI and the Law podcast with Catherine Apps KC and David Mitchell. I'm Catherine Apps and in this podcast we'll be exploring how developments in AI are affecting intellectual property issues and how those issues impact on the broader legal landscape. Today I'm joined in this podcast by Imogen Ireland. Imogen is a senior associate specialising in intellectual property at global law firm Hogan Lovells. Imogen, thank you so much for speaking with me. Can you just tell me a little bit more about how AI impacts on what you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So as you've foreshadowed, I work in intellectual property. And I'll just start with a sort of broad level overview of what that involves. So intellectual property can protect, among other things, inventions and creations and has done for very many years. And what we often see with new technologies, AI included, is that we have to ask essentially the same questions. Can I get protection for these inventions and for these outputs, but in the context of new technologies? And so AI is one of those new technologies that's asking new questions and requiring all of us IP lawyers to have a good think about how it might apply in this context. So just giving you a bit of an example, my career began with a particular focus in patents, but AI, as I've said, among other technologies, requires us to take a holistic approach to IP. And this might involve looking at all of the IP issues touching on AI, whether AI is being used to invent or create, or as part of a device or application. Now, The two IP issues that have received particular interest from clients most recently are whether AI applications can be patented or attain copyright protection, and whether the use of copyright materials without the permission of the rights holder could constitute a copyright infringement. It's fair to say that initially there was a lot of interest in these issues from life sciences companies, for example. The use of AI in, for example, drug discovery and medical devices has been looked at by our clients for a number of years now. And so issues to do with IP protection, which is what I specialise in, and then of course other issues such as data and privacy, have long been considered. But now what we're seeing with this very rapid rise of generative AI, for example, is interest in IP issues from across a really broad range of industries. Rights holders necessarily want to know how IP laws will protect their works from being used by generative AI without their permission. And AI developers are wanting to understand what they can and can't do bearing in mind at least these IP laws. And I want to just step back from IP for a second because I have also been working as part of a cross-practice group at my firm to look at more generally the legal and regulatory landscape for companies using AI. Look, what's really interesting about AI is, and I'm going to state the obvious here, is that before AI, there were no AI regulations in contemplation. There were no AI teams or AI departments And now that jurisdictions are considering how to regulate AI, lawyers are having to become specialists in this new area of law. And so what is unique about that is that issues to do with regulating AI touch on a very many different areas of law, government and regulatory, for example, data and privacy, and of course, IP. So I think it presents a really important opportunity for cross-practice teams to come together, learn from each other's fields of law in order to provide clients this holistic advice on essentially what is a very rapidly developing legal landscape. That's really interesting you say that. We've had so many of our contributors come from sort of different perspectives, but it's the working together that can make things really interesting and show a way forwards. Now, one question which a lot of people have been interested in is, particularly in the world of ChatGPT or generative AI, if you use ChatGPT to then create something, who's actually the author of that work? 
It's a really good question. And it's a difficult but an important question because generative AI is the sort of tool that really is being incorporated in many business practices and or will be incorporated in many business practices. So it's really important to know of that output that you're producing as a company, what do you own essentially? Where is your IP vesting, if at all? And I think the short answer is this is a really challenging question. It hasn't yet been tested in IP law. So if you don't mind, I'll just step us through it and then we can kind of take a look back on it and see how that's going to feed into the discussion more widely. Absolutely. So when we think about generative AI, for example, of course, it's capable of producing some really wonderful things, including artwork, essays and poems. And as I said, you know, as a testament to this, it is being integrated into business practices to produce really meaningful output. With that said, the big question is, you know, is that output going to be protected? And one of the rights that comes to mind is copyright. And for those who don't know, I'm just going to look at a high level, what is copyright? So copyright protects original works, such as literary works, musical or artistic works, in general, for the lifetime of the author plus 70 years. So when we actually come to consider AI and generative AI, there are two key aspects to do with copyright that arise. The first is to do with originality, this requirement for originality. And the second is authorship. So on originality, broadly speaking, to be original, a work must be the author's own intellectual creation. And to be fair, I'm actually quoting from cases, but this originality requirement has been considered in a number of cases, but I am paraphrasing. And that intellectual creation must reflect the personality of its author as an expression of their free and creative choices. So you can see that there's already a question as to whether a person using generative AI by entering, for example, text prompts is making the sorts of choices that we would usually associate with human creativity. And just to remind you, if that originality requirement isn't satisfied, then you have not met one of the tests for copyright. Assuming that we have passed that test, although I will come back to it, we've then got this really important question that, Catherine, you started with, which is to do with authorship. And the general rule is that the first owner of copyright will be the author. Now, of course, there are exceptions to those rules, but we don't need to go into those for the purposes of this question. For present purposes, let's look at it at this level. The first owner is the author. And the underlying assumption to that rule is that there is a human involved. There is slightly more to this than just merely being a human. And of course, it goes back to this originality requirement that I've just mentioned. So for artistic works, for example, the human author must have had a substantial involvement in creating the work. Merely conceiving the idea and directing someone else to create the artwork won't necessarily mean that you're the author of that work. So again, we come back to this idea of inputting prompts into a resource such as ChatGPT. And you can start to see how it feels a bit more like merely conceiving of an idea and directing it. So in that scenario where you are working with something like ChatGPT or generative AI, there is this question, is the AI the author? Well, no, given this requirement that the author must be a natural or legal person, it probably can't be the AI, although again, I should caution that question isn't strictly tested. So then you have to ask, is the human who's been inputting done enough to meet that requirement? I think it's important to mention that the UK is different in the sense that it's one of the few countries that has a special category of copyright protection for computer generated works. And this is interesting because this was an exemption that was drafted into our legislation a number of years ago. So it's always quite exciting as a lawyer when you can 
look back on legislation and see how it can potentially foreshadow new situations, new technological situations. Now, computer-generated works are those works generated by a computer in circumstances such that there is no human author. And the author of such works is the person, and I'm going to quote again or paraphrase, by whom the arrangements necessary for the creation of the work are to be undertaken. Now, the term of this protection is 50 years from the end of the year in which the work was made as opposed to 70. So you can see that it's a slightly different right to the sort of basic copyright that we just discussed before. But already you might start to appreciate how it might be more relevant to this AI context. So then the question becomes, how would it apply? How does it apply in AI? And, and again, the scope of this provision hasn't been tested yet. And that is very much the theme that we're going to have throughout this podcast. There have been cases that have looked at potentially analogous facts. So, for example, in one case to do with video gaming, there was a question, pardon me, concerning the authorship of composite frames in a video game. So on the one hand, you had the video game designer who had designed the series of frames and the game was to do about a, a game of pool. And so he designed the images for the pool table, the queue, etc., and then on the other hand, you had the player who was obviously directing these images by playing the game, by sort of virtually picking up their cue, if you will. So the High Court held that the developer of the video game was the author of the composite images, in other words, the images that came together when you played this game, and not the player. So to cap off your question, let's now take these facts in this case, and let's come back to our example of generative AI there is an argument that it would be the developer of the AI rather than the user inputting the text descriptions who would be the author of the AI-generated works. And it is interesting to note, actually, I double-checked this yesterday, but when you ask ChatGPT who owns the copyright of the content that it produces, it says that OpenAI has provided guidelines indicating that users are the owners of the content that they generate using the AI. So you can see there that there's this sort of intent to resolve this tension between the law on the one hand, which suggests that it might be the AI developer if we look at these related cases, and the intentions of the person using these tools, which very likely is to own whatever they get out of this generative AI. So as I said, yeah, a bit of a detailed sort of canter through that question, but I think it is important and some hopefully interesting ways of looking at the question in a way that hopefully our listeners will appreciate that there's still questions to be answered. Goodness, I thought I wondered whether it was too silly a question for me to be asking, but the answer seems to be absolutely not. Can I throw another question at you, pivoting back to where you started in your career, back to the law of patents? And as you say, patents generally protect inventions. How does patent law at the moment deal with the question of what happens when an AI program has been used in the sort of invention of the new invention? This is a really interesting question because I think that it's fair to say that in today's use of AI, we're not necessarily, although maybe listeners can correct me and tell me about some really exciting use cases, we're not necessarily seeing AI autonomously inventing something. Having said that, there's a really interesting case brought by a man named Dr. Thaler, who had developed an AI, which he called DABUS, and that's an acronym that stood for various things. And he said that DABUS had autonomously created or invented a patent, I think it was for Tupperware boxes, and what was really critical was in his submissions to the various intellectual property offices where he went to try to register this, was that he was saying that the AI had done it all on its own with no human input. And that meant that when the form asked him 
you have to obviously fill in a form when you're applying for a patent. And form has a box to say who is the applicant. And obviously it was Dr. Thaler applying. And the form also had a box and said, you know, who is the inventor? And in, in many cases, the applicant is the inventor. So it's not a tricky box, but he wanted to test this idea. So he put down Dabus and, and the idea to go back to it is testing, can an AI be listed as the inventor? And the application was rejected by the UK IPO, that's the UK Intellectual Property Office. It's also been rejected by the European Patent Office and, you know, many other offices around the world. And what's interesting is that in the UK, this has been appealed. It's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. We're waiting for the Supreme Court's judgment. But what we have so far is the Court of Appeals decision. And at the moment, it looks like you have to be a human in order to be listed as the inventor of a patent. In other words, if your AI were to autonomously invent something, then it would not be able to get a patent for that creation. And it seems quite a futuristic question, but I think having begun the questions, I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see how many use cases out there really do just have AI working autonomously. I can foresee a situation in the future where AI is working more and more autonomously and that the human's involvement is becoming less and less. And so asking this question now, as Dr. Thaler has done, is a really important one to sort of foreshadow where the law might go in this in the future. And am I right in thinking that the Court of Appeal weren't unanimous on their decision that it had to be a person and that there was actually dissent in the Court of Appeal itself? Absolutely. There's a really, for those that have time, it, a really fascinating dissenting opinion from Lord Justice Burse. And whilst he agreed with the rest of the panel that only a human could be an inventor of a patent, he felt that in a sense the forum in which this question had been brought wasn't appropriate in the sense that there shouldn't be a burden on the patent office in the controller of the patent office to have to, if you will, look behind the statements on that form. All they have to do is to sort of certify that, yes, the boxes have been filled out correctly and that that is the inventor. It is not their job to consider the honesty of those answers and whether or not those answers are reasonable. And his suggestion was that there might be other sort of legislative forums, if you will, for bringing this question. So for example, very briefly, there is a provision in the Patents Act that allows third parties to challenge the entitlement to a patent. And in that case, you know, in theory, you could use that part of the statute to challenge the award, if you will, of the patent to the AI. There are other complexities to do with that. So I don't think we've got time to go into those now. But importantly, the dissenting opinion is there. It's very interesting. And so it will be really, really fascinating to see what the Supreme Court does with that. It's fascinating, isn't it, that in an area that is as specialist as IP, the difference between the majority in the Court of Appeal and the dissenter turned on essentially administrative law points about who filled in what form in what forum. Absolutely. And it will be uh, fascinating to see what the Supreme Court make of essentially that, that point being made that obviously there's true IP points, but there's also that broader context as well. And it's also been a common theme of the rest of this podcast series that even in discussions of very specialist legal areas, we very quickly end up into really quite sort of meta questions about what the area of law is for, what does it really do? And would you say that essentially in IP law, it's striking a balance between the interests of inventors and creators on the one hand, and then on the other hand, those who might wish to use that creation in whatever form and possibly even develop further technology or further creative content from it. I guess to break your question down, has the balance been struck? I'd say no in the sense that this is very much still a debate that's happening. How to strike that balance? And, you know, from an IP lawyer's 
perspective, this could well be the question of our times. Let's break that down then. So as may be apparent, IP laws are, are really important because, of course, they can foster innovation. They, they encourage people to pursue innovation, pursue creativity, because if properly innovated, if properly created, you can get a protection for your work that enables you to use it in a commercial sense, but also to sort of protect the integrity of your work from being copied or used by other people. The other side of that equation is that IP laws can also stifle innovation, or at least that's how the argument goes, because of course, it, as I said, it creates these monopolies or these obstacles that then other developers, creators have to navigate, make sure that they're not copying that work or inadvertently infringing it. I'll talk about the counter perspective in a minute, but what I want to focus on firstly is where the AI developer might be coming from. And as I've said, We've got this idea that IP laws can confer monopolies that prevent other people from using certain ideas or reproducing certain works without a license. And sometimes the problem is that IP owners just don't want to give a license. So at the extreme end, and it is an extreme end, you would have to wait until that monopoly has expired before you can use that idea. And this is really important because just sticking still with the AI developer's perspective, at the heart of AI, and I guess we're talking about machine learning really, are large quantities of material from which these systems learn. For example, there are you know, texts from articles, websites, books, pictures, and you can see already that a number of those works are very likely to be protected by IP, such as copyright. And that would mean that use of those materials without the rights holder's permission could constitute an infringement that could be blocked by a court. And so you know, this is a question that the UK Intellectual Property Office has been very interested in, and they have been conducting consultations over the last couple of years on a great many of our most pressing IP questions. And one of the questions they asked was whether there should be an exemption for copyright infringement where materials are mined for the purposes of training an AI. And you can see how the intention behind that was to, I suppose, free up the landscape a bit for AI developers, you, you know, allow them to develop without fear of infringement. And so initially, the suggestion from government was that such an exemption should be created. You know, and as I said, that would have conferred advantages to AI developers for sure. But this proposal was very quickly retracted. And to understand why we now flip to the other perspective, which is, of course, the rights holders perspective. It's really important to acknowledge that the creative industry is one of the UK's most important industries. You know, it's globally respected. And so from a rights holder's perspective, if an AI was allowed to mine that creative output essentially for free and to turn it potentially into competitive, possibly money-making output, then this would undermine the effort that had gone into the original creative work. So the question is what to do. And as I said, the government pulled its original recommendation for this exemption. And as matters stand... You know, there is a copyright exemption if text and data mining is done for research purposes and not for profit. But this question of, you know, how to balance the interest between the AI developers on the one hand, the rights holders on the other, is still very much being considered by the UK Intellectual Property Office and government. We're awaiting their decision on this. Some of the ideas in the meantime that we're seeing coming through are that licensing could and should be made much easier so that AI developers can approach rights holders for a license and to facilitate that whole process to hopefully sort of 
speed it up and mean that, that an AI developer isn't sort of slowed down. Another suggestion is that AI companies should have to disclose which materials they use to train the AI, possibly tagging the original authors. I, I think, you know, many in this audience, many of our listeners will appreciate the complexities of doing that. I mean, in some cases, generative AI can produce output that comes from multiple sources. So the idea of multiple tags could be quite a difficult one to navigate. So it can be appreciated that there are complexities to the solution. Returning to your question, has the balance been struck? Not yet, I don't think, in my personal views, but it's very much something that everyone is watching and seeing how it evolves. Fascinating. Can I pick up on a point about licensing, but a slightly different one than the one that you just spoke about? There's lots of companies not in the IP world who are seeing, you know, receiving a lot of marketing from companies that are seeking to license to them technology involving AI for a fee. One of the issues that companies often find is that when they ask what does the product actually do, how does it actually do it, what's it going to use our confidential information for, the company then says, well, we can't tell you chapter and verse because of IP. How can the buyer actually know what it is that they're buying and also how its own material is actually going to be used by the technology that it's buying a license for? That's a very difficult question. I mean, it goes to the heart, as you say, of confidential information and how that feeds through in this process. I mean, I think let's start by saying, you know, looking at contexts where this question becomes really important. And one of those contexts, as we've already touched upon, is IP infringement. So if you're the licensee and you're looking at acquiring licensing this AI tool, and this AI tool is or has been trained potentially on copyright materials, and licensee goes on to use that tool to reproduce works that or to potentially obviously to produce their own output, but that output could also potentially be reproducing someone else's copyright material, then you could see that there is a risk for infringement because licensee is copying copyright material. That's at a very high level. So in that context, Catherine, your question about why is it important to know what's going on behind and the AI's processes is a really good one how to do it. I mean, building in licensing provisions, I think it is important, but there is a sensitivity around this. For example, training sets can be incredibly broad and somewhat amorphous so that even the AI developer might not be able to precisely pinpoint exactly which materials have been used to train the AI tool. And then we've got this other issue, which is that there might be a notional black box around the AI, meaning that the licensee just point blank might not get to look inside the AI processes to assess the data, the information, and ultimately to assess this infringement risk in this context. So unfortunately, I'm doing that sort of lawyer's thing where there's no straight answer to the question. And I've just explained to you why the question's really important on the other hand. Always nice to know that the question's good to ask, but I wonder if we can bring it down a level of practicality and think about what are the most important questions that commercial entities should be asking when they're considering buying a license for a product that they're told contains an AI element? Let's stick with the infringement scenario and I'll then look at others. So in that scenario, I think it might be appropriate for the licensee to ask questions like, you know, how does your company ensure that the AI generated content doesn't infringe a third party's IP rights? And and questions like that, you know, are important to ask. And as we've just discussed, you might not get the answers that you need because of issues to do with the black box nature of AI, for example. 
so those questions might not get you the whole way. So then the licensing agreement, of course, can play a pivotal role in delineating those liabilities and expectations. For example, you could consider introducing terms that, you know, at one extreme that prevent the utilisation of potentially IP protected material. So in other words, you know, I'll licence your tool, but you have to guarantee that no IP protected works have gone into the making of your tool such that it might create a risk for me. That's an extreme end and that, that's obviously wonderful because you're sort of much more armoured up against that infringement risk. Perhaps more pragmatic or more reasonable terms might instead require the implementation of mechanisms for monitoring and filtering content to mitigate the potential risk of IP infringement. In other words, it's acknowledged by both parties that getting to understand exactly what materials have gone into the AI tool is going to be a very difficult thing for both parties to do. But on the other hand, it may be possible to introduce filters throughout the course of using that tool. Now, of course, licensee can also mitigate its risk through indemnity provisions that could for example, require the AI developer to cover the share of consequences in any IP infringement. And there, there are various ways to do that. And as part of that, you know, licensing can think about the level of involvement they might want to have and vice versa, where either the developer or licensee, unfortunately, to face litigation in those terms. Now, we've talked about infringement risk, but I do want to revisit this question to do with the ownership of IP. And that's where we started today's discussion. Because as we now know, there are live questions as to how IP can arise in an AI context. Nevertheless, I think a licensee might, as a starting point, want to include a provision in the license agreement that says that any IP derived from the use of the AI tool will vest in licensee. So I've, I've talked about that as a starting point, and that goes back to this idea that this idea of ownership of IP is untested. We don't quite know where it falls. You know, there are cases that suggest it could actually fall on the AI developer side of the line. But introducing this starting point into the license might mean that there are some ways to essentially pull the IP back to the party that rightly expects to be able to own it. And it's worth casting our minds back to that chat GPT provision we saw where the intent there is very much to throw the IP back towards the user. Now, the situation is obviously a bit more complex than I've suggested, because I'm talking about output from an AI and, you know, listeners, I'm sure will quite validly ask, yeah, but what output? I mean, output, how do you define that? There are so many different types of output because we've got the literal output that comes from the AI, but then we've got potentially evolutions of the AI tool itself. In other words, when licensee uses the AI tool might evolve, might improve. So who owns the IP in those improvements and those evolutions? And there's a sort of similar question to do with the training data. Again, if licensee is inputting information which or, and or even contributing to the training data that then gets fed back into the AI, who gets to own the training data in that in, or the IP that might arise from the training data in that context? I think it's sort of not contentious to say that the AI developer will probably expect to continue to own the underlying AI tool. And, you know, it might also be reasonable to expect to own any evolutionary changes as well. But certainly I call this a sort of grey territory of output that really does need to be considered and addressed in any licence agreement. Once parties have determined how they'll allocate the ownership of IP, they might also want to consider then the extent to which the other party gets to use that IP. So if we look at the extreme where the evolutionary changes of the AI tool actually go back to any IP and that goes back towards the licensee, 
the AI developer might still want to be able to use that evolved AI tool. And in that case, the license, there needs to be a cross license going back in the other direction. So plenty of points to consider in the context of licensing AI, but those are just a few highlights, if you will. Goodness, it does sound as though asking questions has to be the way forward. But I suppose in some ways, I wonder how different it really is from many things in contract law that essentially the aim is to contractually crystallise where there's legal uncertainty or factual uncertainty. And if you can't do that, crystallise who pays. Exactly. That's a very nice way of summarising in a few sentences what we've looked at in detail. And I think that's right. And I think us lawyers sort of sit often in between that sort of negotiation of the law and the practicalities. Now, one question we've asked all of our guests on this series so far is to place themselves on a scale of one to 10 of how optimistic or pessimistic they are about AI in the future. So one is the most pessimistic and 10 is the most optimistic. Can I push you for a number as to where you'd place yourself? And also if you want to explain to us why you've picked that number. Yeah, it's a really good question and it's a difficult one. So I'm not on the pessimistic end of the spectrum in the sense that I think that we have to accept that AI is coming and it is already being deployed in business practices. And so to be sort of pessimistic about that and about the challenges and risks that it presents, I think means that we're not necessarily going to be where we need to be to solve those challenges and risks. So I'd say I'm cautiously optimistic. I think if I have to give it a number 6.5 to 7, attending to 7, optimistic only in the sense that I do believe that the law plays a really important part in helping AI to be developed safely and ultimately, you know, for the benefit of all of us. And I think assuming that that is the goal that we as humans continue to protect over the decades that AI features in our life, then I am optimistic that we are in a good place to sort of have constructive discussions about how to do that. I think that makes me more of a pragmatist as opposed to an optimist or a pessimist. In other words, it's here and we really ought to think about it and deal with it. Excellent. Well, that's really, really interesting. You are, in fact, our first decimal point of the podcast series. <laughs> oh, gosh. Thank you very much for doing that. And thank you, Imogen Ireland, for joining us on this 39 Essex Chambers AI and the Law podcast. I'm Catherine Apps-Casey. If you want to listen to any other of the podcasts in this series, please go to 39essex.com or follow us on social media. Thank you so much, Imogen. No problem. My pleasure.